I'm Katie. And I'm Michael. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Why do dogs randomly shake when they're not cold or in need of anything? That's a great question, and I don't have a solid answer for that. Come on, man. This is why I'm I a cat here. person. Oh, that's true. So the I can shake uncontrollably? Not particularly. Like, they'll vibrate if they're, like, excited about things, but it's not quite a shaking. A vibrating cat is a really disturbing thought to me. It's wonderful. (laughs) It's just, like, imagine having, like, a really dangerous hot water bottle, like, curled up on top of you that's just, like, sort of vibrating. I just also picture their faces not being pleased. Like, really (laughs) angry, like, what's happening? I think that is doing a disservice to the cats. That's fair. I'm a dog person, so there you go. True. Uh, this is, our, is this our first morning recording? I think this is our earliest yeah. recording we've ever done. I mean, that being said, it's 10 a.m., so people that wake up at 5 are like, you can shut up right now, but <laughs> at the same time. It's like, we're theater people. Anything before noon is challenging. Yeah. Like, I'm tired. Uh, but I did have my coffee, and I think you get to go first, so I'm really excited to sit here and be like, mm, get a little warm-up time. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. Mm-hmm. Um, great. Well, I'm going to then lead us in with, I think, one of the lightest, most upbeat, happiest ones that we've ever done. And by lightest, upbeat, and happy, I mean... Holocaust? We're going to talk about the Holocaust. Oh, my God! <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wow, how do we pick these? Because mine's World War II as well. I think our producer is just really on top of things. And Jen's like, oh, this is going to be a good episode. Good. Okay, great. So we're in the same era, which helps because I, I mean, I don't know how you felt, but I found just like opening one page of the diary of World War II and you end up like uncovering about a library's worth of information that is just very intimidating to go through. So I, you know, I'm not a historian. I, I peek, I peek, I gander. But <laughs> so I just know I'm going to get stuff wrong, but uh, I'm going to steal myself and listen to your beautiful story. That'll be tragic and horrible. And then uh, I'll, I'll, say some incorrect things but hopefully in an entertaining way which isn't that what this is all about i was gonna say how is that different from any other episode we do yeah i know that's fair that's fair all right take <laughs> okay. it away sunday let's... morning let's talk about the holocaust Woo-hoo! sounds good um so the woman i'm doing this week um is named Irina sendler um her she's born Irina krisnazowski and here's the moment where I have to, like, 100% again apologize. Polish is not my strong suit. I've spent the last three months working on a Polish play, and I'm still not 100% on my Polish pronunciations. Mm-hmm. So this might be a little rough. There's a lot of Zs and Ys in the middle, right? So many Zs and Ys. So many Zs and Ys. Um, but anyway, so they Irina. They brand. They're mm-hmm. super on brand, and that brand is difficult for English speakers to pronounce. Say your name one more time. Um, Irina Sendler is the name that she's known okay. by. 
which is okay. more manageable. Um, Krasnozowski is her birth name. Sweet. All right. Um, and she's born outside of Poland in February of 1910. Um, her father, Stanislav, is a doctor and an early member of the Socialist Party in Poland. He passes away when she's just seven years old um, while working with his patients, most likely contracting typhus. Um, and since most of his patients were um, from sort of the poorer communities in and around Warsaw, um, he's often working in sort of like very dangerous conditions. But because he's a socialist and he you know cares about people, he's just sort of doing this regardless of the risks to his own health. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after he dies, um, her mother, Yanina, um, raises her on her own. So single mother in like 19-teens Poland raising Irina. Not great. Um, not great. Um, in 1927, she's going to enter university at the University of Warsaw, where she studies law and literature. Um, she's going to marry uh, Mieczysław Sendler in 1931 Um, and they're gonna spend she's gonna spend the next five years sort of like in and out of university as they sort of figure out what married life is like Um, but while she's a student um, she's an active member of leftist political groups like the Union of Polish Democratic Youth um, and the Polish Socialist Party not Um, good not good Sorry. It's almost like you Spoilers. know where this is going. <laughs> a little bit. I'm a little worried. Is she Jewish? I'm really worried. So here's the thing. So she's not Jewish, um, but she's very pro-Jewish. So the a lot of the yeah, communities like right her okay. dad works with when she's growing up um, are Jewish. And when she's in university, she's sort of very actively campaigning for Jewish rights. Um, in particular, she's protesting what's called the ghetto bench system, which is introduced... Um, at Polish universities in the 30s, and it basically required Polish Jewish students to sit in a specially designated part of the classroom. Um, So sort of very similar to like Jim Crow segregation rules in the American South. Um, And she's... Okay. And we're just going to keep getting better from here. Good morning. Okay. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, She's unsurprisingly repeatedly disciplined for her political activities um, and has refused employment on a number of occasions when she applies to work with the Warsaw City government because of her left-wing views. So I like her. I'm a fan. And I, think I love a good lefty we're gonna... in the time of fascism. It's really refreshing. Oh, uh, God. Okay. Um, and so in <laughs> best... In Poland. Not good. Not good. Best left-wing fashion. Um, In the 30s, she's going to work as a um, social services, social worker, basically. Um, She's working with a couple of clinics associated with the Free Polish University, um, and she becomes associated with members of the Communist Party of Poland, which is still illegal at this time. So she's just like going as left as she can go. Um, At this time, she meets Professor... Helena Radlinska, um, who's going to introduce her to a group of social workers who are going to be instrumental in the work that Sandler ends up doing during World War II. Um, some of my like favorite parts about doing 
history basically like pre-1950s is that like anytime you have an organization chances are the title of it's going to be super super long um Mm. and this like does not disappoint so she's working for the section for mother and child assistance at the citizen committee for helping the unemployed (laughs) yeah no need to you know abbreviate that what is that acronym still it's equally long smash uh doesn't flow very well (laughs) no it does not maybe it's better in polish but in english it is not great Um, And while working for them, she's working closely with clients, um, a lot of whom are in the same communities that her father was working in. Um, So poor, socially disadvantaged women in a lot of Warsaw's sort of impoverished neighborhoods. And a lot of people she's working with are part of Warsaw's Jewish community. While she's doing this, she's also publishing two major pieces on the condition of children who are born out of wedlock and their mothers, which again seems to be a pretty common theme with some of our most recent women like focusing on women and children in their relationship to marriage which i think is pretty dope i could not read any of the papers again because the polish i've got is pretty non-existent but they seem Mm. really cool um and then in 1935 the government is going to shut down her section um and so she begins working for the department of social welfare and public health for the city of warsaw so finally nails that Warsaw job, even though she's still got some pretty leftist politics. Mm-hmm. Now, for everyone's favorite part, in September 1939, Germany invades Poland. Right. Um, her husband is mobilized uh, to serve in the army, but is captured in the early weeks of the conflicts and is going to remain in a German prisoner of war camp for the rest of the war. Um, so it's pretty much just her hanging out in Warsaw under German occupation. Um, And during the invasion itself, um, she works with other members of the Polish Socialist Party inside of her office to forge documents to help wounded Polish soldiers get access to medical care, social aid, um, helps hide some of them once the Germans enter the city. Um, And once the Germans do occupy Warsaw, her department um, is sort of responsible for administering all of the social programs. And one of the first things the Germans do is they say that Jewish residents are no longer eligible for social programs. Um, and so Arena starts forging documents so that Jewish families can still get access to the department services. So pretty much the moment the Germans occupy, she's already basically doing some resistance work and trying to keep as many people as possible access to the services that her department offers. Mm. Um, so then doing that work, things aren't great, but they're going along. And then in November 1940, uh, the Germans are going to force all of the Jewish residents of the city into a 16 square block area and seal it off from the rest of the city, forming the Warsaw Ghetto. And almost 400,000 people are going to be forced into this 16 by 16 block area. So living conditions and public health are deteriorating rapidly because the area is just so overwhelmed like Which obviously is intentional right yes a hundred percent intentional oh is exactly the idea behind doing this um and so irena is going to work with some of her colleagues to get access to the ghetto um under the guise of inspecting sanitary conditions because the one thing the germans were really worried about is that all of this sort of diseases that could arise in conditions like this would spread to the rest of the city so to be clear perfectly fine having the Jewish people die of these diseases, but if anyone else gets sick, 
that's a problem. So even though they don't care about the sanitary conditions in the ghetto, they want to make sure that whatever is happening in there can't leave for the rest of the city. Um, Yeah, that's pretty off-brand for a Nazi to give a crap about what's happening in a ghetto. You know what I mean? Well, if it's going to affect them, they're a little concerned about it. Oh, God. Okay. Um, This is getting better. Mm-hmm. So she's going to use this access to smuggle in medical supplies, food, and clothing, um, and establish contacts with Jewish resistance organizations inside the ghetto. And at the same time, she's going to start working to smuggle people who are inside the ghetto out, mainly children, um, particularly orphans um, or children whose parents are ill, um, and trying to get them out either to foster families who will take care of them um, or to sort of Christian either convents or orphanages to take care of them. Um, and children would be tucked in potato sacks, garbage cans, or brought out through the sewers. Um, in one case, a mechanic took a very small baby out inside his toolbox. Um, uh, so just sort of like any way what? to get these kids out and sort of tuck them somewhere and try to get them out of the ghetto. Oh, um, God. And what she does is she gets them out and then using her connections in the social services department, uh, creates false identities for them and gives them Christian names, histories, paperwork, and then will send them off to these convents or orphanages or foster families and sort of get them as far out of Warsaw as she can. Mm, okay. Um, and then while she's Baby doing... Baby in a toolbox. I'm still on that. Yeah. But okay. It's... Mm-hmm. How do you get that baby to not make a noise? So stressful. Yes. Okay. Um... But at the same time that she's doing all this, she's also recording all of the parents' information and the original names of the children um, in the hopes that at the end of the war can reconnect them um, or at the very least give the kids information about their true identities. So it's not just sort of like throwing them in and erasing their pasts, but Mm -hmm. giving them these new identities, but making sure all of that original information is still hidden somewhere. And so she writes it down in code on these pieces of paper that get tucked into jars, which the jars are then buried beneath an apple tree in her neighbor's backyard, which is like right across the street from a German military barracks. So she's just like doing some really great work and at the same time kind of is basically operating on the idea that like the closer she's working to the Germans, the less likely it is that she's going to be noticed. Um, Mm, Okay. And when she talks about this work later in life, um, she recalls that sort of the most difficult part of it was convincing parents to let go of their children. Um, Because at this point, um, people still don't really have a sense of like what is going to happen. And they think, well, this is as bad as it can get. So at the very least, like, we're still together as a family um, because the sort yeah, of mass... Yeah, some comfort. Exactly. And it's really hard to convince people that, like, let me, this stranger, like, take your child away from you. And, like, they, I can't promise that they're going to be safe, but at the very least, they won't be here. And that's yeah. a really tough pitch to make. Um, and especially because the sort of mass deportations to the death camps haven't started yet. And so it's just sort of this holding pattern of, like, we're here and this is awful, but it can't possibly get worse. So I want to have my kids with me. Um, And it's sort of heartbreaking. Um, She says that, quote, in my dreams, I still hear the cries when they left their parents. This sort of like... because they're all so little. Because they're just, they're kids. And it's this... Oh, they don't know what's going on. Really, like, terrible, terrible situation. Um, Oh, God. Okay. Can I tell you one story I've heard about this moment that I mm -hmm. found very moving? Um... Oh, God. 
So it was something akin to this where it was like trying to get kids out on trains from probably Germany, I think at the time, or Poland or something. So Jews were, it was becoming a crackdown. And, you know, Jews' rights were being eradicated slowly from the German people. So a big group of uh, families put their kids on trains to go and escape. And at the time, you know, they're hugging their kids and the kids get on the train and they can't wave goodbye. Like they can't extend their arm up for fear of it being presumed to be the salute of the Nazi party, which was illegal for a Jew to do at the time. So they couldn't even wave goodbye to their children on the train. So it's like, not only is it this heart-wrenching thing, but you couldn't even give them, like, the common decency to, like, say goodbye to their children. <laughs> like That's awful. That's even, like, ugh. It's, like, the hardest thing, and then we're going to make it three times as hard. Um, and, ugh, yeah. So all these little kids are like, wow, well, you know, trying to, like... And the kids can't do it either, because they're all Jewish. They didn't discriminate between age at that point, so... Anyway, sorry. Derail. <sighs> It's just, it's just they turn a corner and it's a worse story. You know what I mean? And then you go over here and it's like, oh no, it's terrible over there too. Okay, great. Yep, there is really nothing not awful about yeah, this chunk of history. Yeah, we're gonna need to say something happy at the end of this episode, kind of like lift. Yeah, we'll see if we can get the audio version of like a cat gif queued up and ready for everyone. Yeah, a shaking cat, a water bottle cat. <laughs> All right. Okay. Where so were think- we? We were smuggling children out of the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, In 1942, things are indeed going to get worse um, in what the Germans called the Great Action in the summer of 1942. About 280,000 residents of the ghetto are deported to the death camps at Treblinka. And so now there's only about 100, 120,000 people left in the ghetto. Um, And in response to this, the Council for Aid to Jews, um, or Zygota, is formed. Um, and that organization helps care for and hide the thousands of Jews who are still hiding in the city, um, as well as trying to rescue as many from the ghetto as they can um, before the ghetto is completely destroyed following an uprising in 1943. Um, and September of that year, Irina is going to take over Zagoda's operations, specifically caring for Jewish children. Um, And so she's going to continue smuggling them out of the city to convents and orphanages, as well as hiding the ones who have to remain in the city and finding resources for them. Um, But in October, on October 20th, she's going to be arrested by the Gestapo, the German secret police. Um, Before they arrest her, she manages to hide the collection of names Um, and the money that she was keeping hidden um, by passing them down the fire escape to a friend. Um, But she's taken to the Pavika prison where she's interrogated and tortured, um, and she gets sentenced to death. But at the last minute, one of her colleagues is able to bribe a guard, and she escapes on the morning she's supposed to be executed. Um, So she's now going to spend the rest of the war on the run. Um, She's still going to be working with the underground, but she's going to be in hiding until the Germans are forced out of Poland in 1945. Um, After the war, she's going to go home and dig up all of the jars with the children's information in them, and then will work with Zagoda to try to reunite as many of these children as possible with their families. Unfortunately, most of their parents and extended families 
are killed during the war. And so she tries to get them either in full-time foster care um, or gets them sent to adoptive families, many of whom live in Israel. Um, And so is sort of doing her best to help these children rebuild their lives. But of course, there's not a whole lot there because post-war Poland is a complete and total mess and there's almost no Jewish people left in the country at this point. the communist government is going to take over Poland um, pretty soon after it's liberated from the Germans. Um, and so Irina, being the leftist that she is, is going to work a number of jobs with the Polish government, um, including as a department director in the Ministry of Education and also working for the Ministry of Health. Um, she's also going to work um, running some medical schools in Warsaw. Um, she has her husband comes back in 1945 once he's released from a German POW camp. Um, they're going to divorce in 1947, um, and she's going re- to marry um, one of her wartime colleagues that same year. They're going to have three kids, but will separate in 1957. She's going to remarry her first husband in 1961, but they're going to divorce again in 1971. Um, and so she sort of has some trouble, I guess, maintaining these long-term relationships, which I think is in a lot of ways really attributable to the trauma that she lives through during the war. Um, It's something that isn't really dealt with very explicitly in post-war, particularly in post-war Europe, um, but also in the United States and sort of other countries where this mass trauma happens is that like it leaves some really lasting impacts on people, but they don't have the vocabulary um, or this sort of social yeah. conditioning to talk about it. And so people mm-hmm. are sort of really struggling to deal with it, but don't know what they're dealing with. And so you see a lot of divorces, um, suicides, levels of depression spike. Um, and it's the kind of thing where a lot of that actually gets passed on to the children who are born right after this. This was sort of an interesting thing, a bit of a rabbit hole that I fell down. But a lot of... Um, recent research shows that um, trauma, particularly things like PTSD or depression, um, actually leave an imprint on um, children. So if like the mother is suffering from these issues, um, it will sort of unlock a number of genetic markers in her children that make them more predisposed to depression um, and other types of mental illness. Um, So just to sort of think of like the mass scale on which this happens in Europe, in the 40s, and then you have an entire generation of children sort of born with these lasting impacts as well, which was just, like, fascinating and depressing to think about. Yeah. Um, But she's going to keep sort of trudging along in the sort of best Polish way, um, even though she has these sort of three marriages uh, that fall apart. She raises her children. um, She continues working for the Polish government, Um, And then in 1980, she joined Solidarity, which is the anti-Soviet labor movement that's rising in Poland at this point that's eventually going to lead to the fall of communism. Um, And she passes away in May 2008 at the age of 98. Um, She's ultimately credited with having saved the lives of over 2,500 Jewish children. Um, And at In 1965, she's honored as Righteous Among the Nations um, by Yad Vashem in Israel. Um, She's also given Poland's highest distinction, the Order of the White Eagle, in 2003. Um, 
and there are like a number of books um, and documentaries about her work. Um, it's this sort of Poland's in this moment right now of having a really complicated relationship um, with memory and remembrance around the Holocaust. Um, they recently passed a law making it illegal to discuss um, or in any way attribute either to Poles um, or to the Polish nation any responsibility for the Holocaust, which mm. obviously, in addition to just being like a deeply problematic stifling of free speech, there's a lot of historical evidence to say that, you know, in the same way that Irina and other Poles are actively participating to protect Jewish people um, and to resist the Holocaust, there were people who were actively participating in atrocities or, you know, yeah. helping the Germans find their neighbors. And so it's just like, it makes what is a really complicated, challenging thing to work through as a country is like, how do you deal with your historical yeah. relationship to this? Yeah. Which like, obviously, like the United States, we have not done a really stellar job of dealing with the like, horrific mass traumas in our history. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. Thanksgiving just happened. And that was all fine. Yeah, we definitely don't have a a national holiday that totally obscures centuries of genocide with, like, some turkey. Well, that's the thing, is that our brand of Thanksgiving needs a little um, waking moment, where it's like, I don't mind the idea of, like, a thankful holiday where you, like, sit back with your family and you go, like, wow, don't we have a lot? Isn't it good to be humble in this moment? But the second you start, like, bringing in the historical context of the first Thanksgiving, we don't need that anymore. That's, I mean, not even most of us are related to pilgrims. If anything, we should have, like, an Ellis Island holiday because that's where most of us came from. And then not even the fact that, like, people weren't brought or didn't come here voluntarily. So you kind of alienate all of them, too, for their ancestry. So it's just, like, not all of us were pilgrims, and that's okay. And maybe let's have a a little more melting pot of a holiday that doesn't totally alienate a whole group of people that we weren't very nice to. Yeah, I um, think... So, like, everyone's got complicated histories. And no one is, like, yeah. necessarily dealing with them particularly well. But, like, Poland in particular, I think, at this moment is, like, really struggling to come to terms with, like... What is its relationship I a, there? I mean, I'm, we're going to talk about it with mine as well, with all of those Eastern European countries that were very, I mean, we'll talk about it more. Yeah, it's it's hard. And it's also like, it takes this time is the other part. Like, they don't need an answer. They just need to like make a step, step by step. And, you know, over time it'll happen. But it's only been what? I don't even know how long, 70 years? Yeah, and I mean, if years? you think about it, like, communism ended the late eight, late 80s like exactly and like, none of these conversations were the, happening then no they've been dealing with like the ghosts of that entire event this whole time i mean our entire parents lives our entire lives they're still dealing with it so that's just not enough distance to kind of make peace with it well not even make peace but like acceptance and like humility and moving on it's just too close because everybody's dads or granddads were involved everybody's mom and grandma was involved it's just it's a nightmare it's like a really uh, convoluted um you know uh like a ball of yarn that's been all like tied up and if you start pulling it just like pulls somewhere else and you can't get it untied very quickly you got to take the time yeah i think that's a great metaphor for it you know it's ball of twine um okay good job michael do you want to take a little break 
Yeah, let's take a, a little break. cleansing breath. <laughs> so let's jump in. I'm going to talk to you a lot about Belarus. Okay. I'm going to talk to you about Minsk. I'm going to talk to you about resistance groups in occupied Eastern European countries, mainly Belarus. So I have two gals again. Because one was, I started down and it was very short. So then I found another one and I was like, ooh, hello. So we're going to do the shorter one. Sounds good. Um, I've heard her name said Zina and Zineda. It's spelled Z-I-N-A-I-D-A, Portnova. She's born in 1926 in Leningrad to um, parents who were from Belarus. And uh, in 1926, she... Uh, you know, working class family, they're living in the city. But as you know, in September 1939, uh, Germany invades Poland. They did so with the help of the USSR at this time. Um, so it was like Stalin and Hitler had a little pact, like, hey, let's invade Poland together. Or like, invade Poland, but like, don't come for me, USSR, because yeah. I'm going to take Poland. And so it means like, cool, we're going to keep all of our stuff. And then maybe when this all shakes out, we can like split everything. And that'll be fine because two crazy dictators with mustaches are known for their um, agreements. Anyway, <laughs> this is all to say that very shortly after that, um, uh, well, in 1939, they had a pact where they would divide Eastern Europe between the two. And by 1940, Germany's like, mm, yeah, we're not doing that because in our in our sweet, sweet leaders uh, grand plan, we're actually going to purge Eastern Europe of all the native people so that Germany can have place to like, uh, I hate saying all of these things. Um, so that Germans can have a place to uh, settle and repopulate the earth for lack of a better word with all Germans all the time. Um, so that whole splitting things with Stalin wasn't really part of his um, game plan. So uh, Nazis, uh, the Germans uh, decide to invade the USSR in like 1941, I want to say. And all of a sudden, those Eastern block of uh, the German war is uh, occupying all of these countries that were under Stalin rule. Does that make sense? So all of a sudden, he's not just occupying um, Poland, he's occupying USSR territories. So Mm -hmm. that involves our little lady Zena who's living on the borderlands where um, the Germans would go first right so seeing this her parents are like "Mm, maybe we should get you out of here you're like 14 we love you very much so you're gonna go live with your grandma in the country Frankie's very agitated because I'm talking about Nazis I'm sorry um so she goes to her grandma's house in the country uh she um They think it's going to be safe there, but Nazis occupy everywhere. And what you have on the farmland is all of the, like, raw materials, food, cattle, horses that you can take to supply your army. So then you don't have to, like, ship things from Germany. You're just going to take whatever's there. So they go to her grandma's um, house and uh, are taking their cattle. When you take their cattle, you're basically saying you're going to starve and die. And grandma puts up a fight because she's badass. And, uh... Of course, because she has this kid as a grandchild. Um, and an a officer or a soldier ends up hitting her grandmother in front of her. And she's like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> I'm 16 and I'm done, officially. Mm. And so mm. having kind of no stable home life, she decides to join a group called the Young Avengers. 
which I can't even. I hope they had outfits. I know they did. Um, it was a local underground resistance group. So there's a lot of resistance groups at this time in all of these occupied territories. I just want to be known. And they did not discriminate with age. So she was among her peers in terms of like 18 and younger. And what they would do, they would like pass out propaganda leaflets to like other citizens to let them know that there's resistance happening in their town. And they, um, she particularly uh, helped collect and hide weapons for Soviet soldiers that were um, stockpiled. And then as like, okay, I'm not doing a really good job of explaining this. So as Germany invaded the Soviet Union they decimated a lot of the Red Army. The Red Army had put up stores all throughout the, the countryside. So Germans didn't know they were there. Soviets might come back from Moscow and stuff. So they were trying to like keep the keep the stores hidden so that they would have supplies when they got there. Um, Makes sense. She did some of that. She They also did a lot of like uh, what would be called domestic terrorism, I guess, but specifically site, like um, sites where... Nazi occupation would be impacted the most. So they did power plant bombings, factories. There's one uh, instance of a water supply plant that they kind of blew up or something like that. Um, Because they're little kids running around scrappy, I don't think they're suspected as much. Um, All in all, she's cited as saying she killed about 100 soldiers. Or her group did, so... They're not doing bad. Uh, in 1943, she becomes a kitchen aide at this house where um, a garrison is stationed in the area. And she's, you know, just working in the kitchen. And she goes full Arya Stark because she starts poisoning the food. <coughs> Which is okay. bold, right? Because when bold all of move. the soldiers get sick, would you not go immediately to the kitchen and be like... Generally, it's the first place you check. Got the arsenic. So... I mean, she. I don't know how many she kills, but a lot of... Not good. It's not good. They immediately suspect the kitchen. They go and they question all the people working in the kitchen. And uh, they're like, you, you look shifty. What's your deal? And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm fine. I'm going to eat this strudel right now in front of you. And she eats the food that has poison in it, knowing full well it has poison in it, because she did. And she's like, yeah, what? And like, eats it in front of them. And then what did I say? I said, apparently they don't know how long the effects would take or there's idiots about the human body. So they're like, oh, she didn't fall over dead. So I guess, you know, that's fine. Or she would be, they would think she was nuts and didn't, no one would eat their own poisoned food. Like you would self-preserve before that. But she's that hardcore that she's just like, boom, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. She runs home, gets violently ill, is able to survive because she drinks a lot of whey, like the byproduct of milking cows or whatever soaks up all the poison and she survives but that being said drinks poison and lives yeah so she she was gone for a while to like recover and then they were like oh i bet she got sick later so now they know it was her kind of you know no good way out of that but she did her best so um the young avengers group sends her back into the garrison which is sort of a little a little mean because it's not going to go well for her and uh She's immediately captured because they're like, oh, little poison girl, we know you. Um, We're all still feeling those effects. So then two possible things happen. They're kind of similar, but I'm going to go with the first story because it seems the more cited one. 
So they take her into her room where they're going to interrogate her. She's all of 17, 16 or 17 at this time. And the Gestapo officer somehow puts his rifle, puts his pistol on the table or throws his pistol on the table to which I'm like, what? What? You're dumb. Um, and she takes it and she shoots the interrogator and then other guys run in and she shoots them and then she runs out and they ended up catching her, but not before taking down three more Nazis casually. So clearly like trained in fighting, trained in firearms and super, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, when you don't think somebody's unthreatening, what's the word? Um, like unassuming? Unassuming or, yeah, just they didn't think much of her. But she ends up just being a, brandishing a pistol and shooting some officers. Um, she was captured. Now we're going to take a sad turn. She was captured. Uh, they think she was probably tortured and beaten. And then they took her out into the woods and killed her. Uh, she died January 15th, 1944, and it was a month before her 18th birthday, which sucks. Um, yes. However, in 1958, she was declared a hero of the Soviet Union and received an order of Lenin, which I know doesn't mean a lot to us, but at the time to be singled out as a 17 year old girl for the work you did, you know, she didn't die unknown. Well, she probably died unknown, but then her legend kind of lived on and was definitely mm-hmm. a morale booster for the rest of the young groups. She has a lot of young groups named for her on her. School teams and things named after her, a museum, and uh, a little obelisk monument is in Minsk in the heart of Belarus with her story, or her name on it, and her, her uh, um, uh, bust of her is there. Um, so yeah, that, that was the first one. And then reading about her made me get, um, into the second lady that I'm going to talk to you, talk to you about. So the second one is also a Belarusian, Belarus, Belarusian. That that seems about right. Belarus native. Um, her name is Yelena Mazanik. She's born in 1914 to a peasant family in a village. I'm not going to say because we don't want any hear it come out of my mouth, but around Minsk, around the capital area one of the biggest cities in the in the in the country um she had a kind of chill education and uh went to work as a waitress after a while she soon got married she did she tried to have kids but they didn't live past um a few uh a few years and in one case a couple days i mean she just didn't have a success there but she went and kept working and kept working. Um, Germans invade Belarus. They take control of Minsk. She's living there with them in an occupied country. And uh, she's working at a dining hall for German officers, but then she's recruited to work at the mansion of the the German in charge, Wilhelm Kube? Kube? I don't know. K-U-B-E. How's your German? Not any better than my Polish. Okay, let's call him Wilhelm. Um, he is a treat. I don't want to talk about him too much because, as I said in my notes, uh, I'm going to curse right now. What a fucking Nazi. He's terrible. Um, he's terrible. He's terrible, which you have to be to be put in charge of an entire area and go, let's get some people dead here. I'm a Nazi. Uh, okay, so 
he had a lot of kind of what's it called hypocritical views on um his nazism his like border uh, his uh ideas of what constituted a good person for example there's a lot of stories of him like being more mild to german jews as opposed to like russian or eastern european jews if they were german first they're a little bit better you know all that kind of weird stratification Mm -hmm. of like how i see the world is what's right and you're a this and you're in this box and you're in this box and this box is better and it doesn't make sense except to him um ironically he studied history economics and theology so apparently education did nothing for him and he joined the ss in 1934 and he served at Dachau concentration camp, so he knew exactly what he was doing. Oh, I'm sorry, but we have to talk about it for a second. Um, he was appointed to headquarters in Minsk to kind of oversee the occupation of that area. Uh, do I want to say what he said? Mm, not really, but let's just say he killed not only the Jewish Belarus- Belarusians, but also a lot of the local population. As I said before, part of Germany's grand plan was to kind of eradicate all native peoples so that Germans would have a nice little area to move into after the war and just, you know, farmland and all that nonsense. Oh my god, they were so dumb. Okay. Uh, so he's the worst. A lot of atrocities that we don't need to talk about. A lot of atrocities, a lot of children, a lot of stuff in the ghetto. I mean, it's just, we just, I I can't tell if I should talk about it because it's important to know how terrible it was in order to, like, both humanize victims and their perpetrators. Because when we forget that they're human, it's where the danger is. But at the same time, I just, I don't think we need this on a Sunday morning. If you want to look it up, just look up the pit memorial that's in Minsk. Where a lot of people died. But thank God there's a memorial now that we get to remember them. Um, I just want to be known, like, you don't need to know the specifics, but trust me that he was a monster. Um, So he's living in this house. Yelena is, you would think she'd be in the kitchen, but she's like a maid. She goes up and makes the bed and cleans up after him. There's kids around the house and his wife is pregnant at this time. So there's a lot to do. Um, he, because of his treatment of not only the Jews, but the local population as well, everyone kind of felt that he was a pain in the ass. So resistance groups were like, let's kill him. Let's kill him good, please. He's, he should go down. So they start plotting his assassination. Uh, they try to blow up a a theater where he was attending a performance. Um, but he had left right before it went off. Um, so then they try and get close to him and they recruit Yelena and uh, they introduce her to the cause. I don't think she needed much persuading based on what she says later, which I will tell you about. She basically equates the Nazis to like mad dogs that need to be put down because they're acting insane. Which I'm, she's Fair. not, I'm going to say she's not wrong. Um, It's for, yeah. Anyway, I don't like killing anybody, but I can understand her reasons is what I'll say. So they they persuade her to take on this task. And this is where I just, I'm trying to give you context for like how bananas this was. So he's not only living in this mansion, but he is protected at all times. It's not like it's just his house and you can go into his house and do whatever you want. Like there's soldiers at every level of this house patrolling the house. Like the Germans know he has enemies and they know that 
he is being plotted against. So they <laughs> they originally wanted to have this is also a testament to her character. They thought maybe let's poison him and um that'll be easy to do, you know, no worries, you can run away. There's like a time bomb within a person. And she's like, no, because if you put it into food, they all eat out of the same dish and there's children in the house and I don't want to kill kids. That's not what we do. That's what they do. So let's stay pure. So they say, okay, fine. I mean, that's what we want to do, but fine. So let's do an actual bomb. And so they rig up a device. They give it to her. She goes into work at like 6.30 in the morning. So they set the bomb to go off within the next, or at the next 24 hour mark. So ideally when he's still asleep in his bed. So she goes, she puts it in her bag. She puts a hanky over it. She walking into work. Um, that's these bananas. So when she goes in, a bunch of soldiers like accost her and they're like, what are you doing here? I don't know why in particular, because she worked there all the time, but they're like, what's going on? Look, her, look at her stuff, search her bag. And she's like, oh, crap. So they look in her bag. There's a hanky covering it. They're like, oh. And they, according to her testimony, she's like, they went to lift the handkerchief. And she was like, hey, how dare you? That's for Anita, which is Wilhelm's wife. And that's private. And you can't look at it. And they were like, oh. And somehow they get distracted enough that she, they don't actually find it. She immediately runs into a bathroom and takes the bum out and puts it in her underwear. To which I'm like... Ah, that's so stressful. And then uh, it's so stressful. <laughs> and then there's a lot of stories of her, like, as she's trying to plant it, like having to distract guards. They're just they're just everywhere. There's like one that comes to talk to her while she's trying to make the bed. There's another one that like comes around the corner and she's like, ah, just give me like two minutes. And she gets like the maid to flirt with one of them, and she like steals brandy to give to another one. So it's like, don't suspect me. Don't worry about it. Um. So she. All the family leaves the house. She goes up to the bed. She plants it in the bed, in between like the mattress and the springs, and sits on the bed to make sure it won't fall out, which is crazy. Like apparently this is quite a hardy bomb. And uh, let's see, at the same, um, she plants a bomb. She then is like, oh, I got a really bad toothache. I need to go home. And they let her leave. Uh, she she heads home. She actually meets up with her f- husband, who, and then they. Um, immediately leave the, t- the city because they knew they would trace it back to her and that she would be killed if not her whole family would be killed as well um and then at 1:20 in the morning the bomb went off 40 minutes early killing him and luckily his wife was not his wife was pregnant at the time she was not hurt she had been sleeping in a different room at the time probably because she was uncomfortable i don't know it's hard being pregnant at that point um and you're married to a Nazi. Maybe she just didn't want to sleep next to a Nazi. He's terrible. Uh, he died. Darn. And uh, uh, she was able to get evacuated to a safe place. However, the Soviet Union didn't treat her very nicely. They were kind of mad that, I don't know, she didn't want to poison them. They had, I don't know, they had issues with how she did it. So uh, they were flown to Moscow and interrogated to make sure what had gone down and what happened. And then she said they, she learned later that they wanted to kill her and frame another woman as the assassin, but they didn't end up doing that. I am not sure why. But later on in 1943, she is also awarded uh, the title of Hero of the Soviet Union. 
And here's what I will say. This is a quote of hers. If I had the strength, I would do it all again for my country, for Russia, for Belarusia, Ukraine, for my country. Nothing could have stopped me if an enemy came to our land and did what he did, burning people alive, hurting people together. I was present at some of his banquets held in honor of the leaders who carried out these actions, exterminations, men who destroyed villages. When they got together and drank schnapps, he said things like, I have to admit, blah, blah. anyway, she goes on and on. She's like, they're insane. I did what I had to do for the people of my country. Um, she joins the Communist Party after the war. She uh, graduates from, uh, I assume, a college situation. It's Pedagogical Institute. I don't know. I assume it's a college situation. And she worked as a deputy director of the main library of the Academy of Sciences of the Belarusian SSR. And she lived uh, till... April 7th, 1996, and was buried in Minsk. Um, mm-hmm. But they're both both of these ladies are on various websites about Russian heroes of World War II or Soviet heroes of World War II, so I'm sure I have quite the internet history that the government is interested in right now. Because <laughs> I had to press Google Translate a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know how I felt. I, I was like reading it, and I was just sad that these women had to kill people and then I'm also just was like mortified at what had happened I mean I think at the end of the day I I forget how many people died but most of the Belarus natives that died in World War II and Jews didn't die from gas chambers or or, um, starvation or anything they died by bullet so it was a very hard time to be in that country it was a very brutal time you saw a lot of people die and i think the main capital minsk lost 80 percent of its infrastructure and buildings so like you were saying earlier like coming back from that can you imagine there's like 80 percent of your town being gone and like how long that would take to rebuild and then also they were they were dealing with the after effects of the soviet union even being formed and that those border states definitely were hit really hard in the early days of Stalin. They had to had a famine right immediate in Ukraine immediately preceding the war, and then to have Germans invade. I mean, it was just nonstop, nonstop. Yeah, it's there's this really famous book called Bloodlands that talks about what life was like in those border countries during this period, um, and it's sort of a riff off of this sort of historical concept of borderlands that those are really sort of important areas to study but bloodlands because it's just such a horrifying time yeah um, because basically they're occupied by the soviet union yeah and then they're occupied by the germans and then they're occupied by the soviet union again beautiful identity that's different than all of those and then the number it's done on them like i know as an american like i lump them all together in terms of like what makes their culture specific and interesting but that's really a disservice to like ukraine and kazakhstan and and lithuania and all of those areas that were sort of in even my youth i remember like they were all part of the same map and then all that map got changed like within my lifetime so it's you know i i want to do a more due diligence of like researching specific areas to be like why why Minsk and what about this area did German find appealing and 
the reason the resistance was so um, successful there is because of the fact that the terrain was so uh, uh, complicated at parts. Like there was a lot of like swamp mm-hmm. land and there was a lot of forest and like you couldn't just march through a plane and like attack. Which is also a reason like Germany didn't do well when invading Russia is because well a it was winter which is stupid but also like they had thought well france was just so easy but they didn't have to go through all of this sort of slog of territory they really didn't know um yeah yeah and yeah it's just crazy also the whole misnomer of like germany invaded russia and it's like "Mm, they didn't though they invaded poland and belarus and ukraine and all these other places first and we don't give them enough of a a nod, if you will. Anyway, mm-hmm. ugh, how are we gonna lift this up? Um, go watch Mel Brooks for a little bit or something. I guess, yeah. Have you seen him do the um? It's at the end of History of the World Part One or whatever, and he has uh like little clips to kind of jump through history, and one of them is Hitler on ice, and it's just a guy dressed mm-hmm. as Hitler doing, like, beautiful pirouettes on the ice, and you just can't help but laugh, because it just, it really, it's a bomb. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think History of the World Part 1 is probably the best answer to this episode. Yeah, it's like, good. Go watch that. Yeah, that's, that works for me. I'll do that. Yeah. Well, these women are both pretty complicated. History is complicated, so we take it one woman at a time. Or three at a time, in this case. Yeah, we do! We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.